Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at the life of Elijah. You probably know some things about Elijah. Maybe you can remember all the way back if you had Sunday school classes, learning about some of the miracles that God performed for him. But maybe you remember this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Shortly before, maybe six months or so before he died and rose again, Jesus asked his disciples this, Who do people say I am? Do you remember their answer? Some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Why might people say that they thought Jesus, when he came to this world, was Elijah? Well, there's some things that happened in Elijah's life that will spell that out. But it's Malachi, the prophet Malachi, who actually says another like Elijah was coming. It was six months later that Jesus was with his disciples, six days later, sorry, that Jesus was with his disciples on top of a mountain. Three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the transfiguration happened. Do you remember the two people who were standing with Jesus and the disciples? Moses and Elijah. See, Elijah is this representative of all of the Old Testament prophets, someone who defended the truth of God's word in spite of all that was standing against him. His name, Elijah, means, my God is the Lord. And what we're going to see today and through the course of the next couple of weeks are the blessings that you and I can take from the life of Elijah and the way that God fulfilled the promises that he made through him. Today, we're going to see it in the form of some tragedies that happen and how God overcomes those tragedies. I think it's safe for me to say at some point in all of our lives, it will happen. It's going to take different forms. But in the end, it's going to be similar. There are things that happen in this life because we live in a world stained by sin that flip our lives upside down, that turn our lives inside out, and those things are often completely unpredictable. They leave us with scars, broken hearts. They leave us with frustration and worry and wondering. That's what tragedy can do. And at some point in our lives, all of us will probably experience it to one degree or another. Maybe it will be a broken down body, or maybe broken relationships, or maybe just broken hopes and dreams. So what do we do? Where do we go when tragedy comes into our lives? God has some lessons for us today through the prophet Elijah. Where to go when tragedy hits our lives and what and who to trust when they come. And so today as we take a look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and look at Elijah and the widow, we'll see first of all that it's God who provides our needs. And then secondly that it's God who rescues us from death. We're going to look at this verse by verse in the Bibles that you have in front of you in the pews. If you'd like to follow along, you're encouraged to do so. You certainly do not have to. Pull out your phone if you'd like. Just listen is fine as well. But we are today going to be on page 555 in the Pew Bible. And as you're looking that up, 
just a little bit of a uh, background to where Elijah came from, how he shows up all of a sudden in 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to be told in a few verses that Elijah is from Tishba in Gilead. You can see that over here on the very bottom right of the screen. And he's a prophet in the 9th century BC. By my math, that's almost 3,000 years ago that Elijah was a prophet in the northern part of the promised land, the northern ten tribes of Israel. You might remember the history of that, that after King Solomon, there was a division in the kingdom. There was the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judah. The northern tribes, the kings were marked by wickedness, rebellion, idolatry, and that's where God called Elijah to be a prophet. During the course of our, our look, walk through 1 Kings chapter 17 today, we'll see Elijah in Samaria, then over here to the brook in the Kareth Ravine, and then finally up to Zarephath in Phoenicia. Will you take a look with me? We're going to look at the first six verses of 1 Kings chapter 17 on page 555. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This tough assignment that God gave to Elijah involved the king at that time, King Ahab. If you would just flip a couple of verses back into verse six, chapter 16, you'd actually read this about Ahab. He was more wicked than any of the kings that came before him. Not something you probably want to have written about you, but it wasn't for bad reasons. God knew exactly what was going on in Israel, and it wasn't just Ahab, it was his wife Jezebel, the queen. They had brought to Israel another form of idolatry, the false gods Baal and Asherah. Baal is the male counterpart, Asherah is in folklore both his wife and his sister, and they were both responsible for the fertility, for the rains falling and the crops growing. And so God's judgment came in the first words we hear from Elijah's mouth. It's judgment. He actually promises that there will not be rain. No rain unless God says so. And the drought that ensued, we'll find out a little later, was three and a half years of no rain. I don't know how you feel Maybe your lawn looks a lot like mine, just a little bit brown and crispy since we haven't had much rain in the last month. But can you imagine, after a month, knowing what things look like, what it would look like after three and a half years? What kind of dryness would exist? And then it goes a lot further, doesn't it? In an agricultural society like Israel was, the crops can't be produced, which means no food, which means the economy is going haywire. But that wasn't God's reason for judgment. His reason was to demonstrate to Ahab, to Jezebel, to anyone else who thought these two false gods, Baal and Asherah, were the ones who brought rains and, and brought all of the 
prophets that people experienced, they were nothing. And worshiping them was complete foolishness. And so God says, unless I say so, no rain for the next three and a half years. But isn't it amazing how God continued to provide? And he provided for Elijah in a pretty remarkable way, if we stop to think about it. He directs him across the Jordan River to that Kareth ravine to a brook where he's going to get his water. And then the next thing is truly remarkable. You're going to be fed morning and evening, bread and meat from ravens. Maybe we don't have a lot of experience with ravens. I think more common in our neck of the woods is crows from the same family. But have you ever seen a crow on the side of the road when there is an unfortunate animal that has been hit by a car? Sometimes we call that roadkill, I guess, right? Does it seem like the raven or the crow is interested in sharing with other people or other birds or other creatures? Of course not. And so God is actually causing these ravens to act against their nature, contrary to their nature, when he sends them with food to Elijah every single day. It's a miracle. And it's the first of several miracles that we're going to see in this chapter. You see, today God normally provides for you and me through natural means. He gives us the ability to work, to earn a living, to buy the things that we need. But don't put it past God to act in miraculous ways as he did here for Elijah. I think about Ahab and Jezebel, and I think about the warnings that they should have listened to but never did. And I was reading a story this week, and, and many of you know this, you've spent time at a beach, you know that that little sign is generally there for you to know what conditions are at the beach that day. And apparently in some locations in our country where the beaches are located, there's been a lot of riptides, a lot of undercurrents that have been causing trouble. They're actually called double red flag days, and so if you see, you see the uh, top there, the water is supposed to be closed to the public. And I've heard some, some frustration expressed by those who patrol the beaches, the lifeguards and the officers who are in charge of it because people have seemingly been ignoring the warnings. And then, of course, if they ignore the warnings, they get trapped because they've overestimated their own abilities and then it causes those who are in charge of their safety to bring them that help. And I thought, isn't that a picture of the Christian life? How often we ignore warnings. Oh, it's easy, isn't it, to look at Ahab and Jezebel and say, how foolish that they're worshiping these gods that don't even exist and thinking those are the gods that bring rain on the land and produce the crops. But maybe our idolatry takes a form that's even more dangerous because it's subtle. Sometimes we don't even realize the things that we've made gods in our lives. Whether it is our jobs, the people that we love. Maybe it's the material things in this world. We think if only we could have a little bit more, then we would truly be happy. If God would just bless us in this way, then, then, then life would be great. Put ourselves above all things. We trust our own ability to provide and we miss those warning signs. It's probably good for us to hear these things about Ahab and Jezebel, about the warnings God gave to the people of Israel. 
Because sometimes when we think we're standing firm, we too need to be careful that we don't fall. And so God provides. He provides the help that we need. And isn't that amazing? I suppose if you want to look at it in terms of, of a picture of a lifeguard, that works just fine. We're in over our heads. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that's where God brings his son, Jesus. That's where Jesus comes and takes our place, lives the life that we can't live, and then rescues us from sin and death to a life with him forever in heaven. Let's take a look at verses 7 to 16, the, the second part of the story. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The brook dried up. The food source needed to be changed. And so God sent Elijah to a place that if we were going to take predictions about where the next place Elijah was going to go, Zarephath might be at the bottom of the list. There's at least three reasons why it seems incredible that God would send the prophet to Zarephath. First of all, it is outside of Israel. They are not his fellow countrymen. He's going to Phoenicia, to Zarephath, which is real close to the city of Sidon. Again, if you would go back to chapter 16, you'd find out that that's the hometown of none other than Queen Jezebel herself. Do you think that Elijah could expect to have a warm welcome in a town where Jezebel called, that a town that she called home? And then thirdly, he sends her to a widow, a widow who has barely enough means to support herself, and now she's going to be the one that's going to feed Elijah for the rest of the famine? It did not seem likely. Jesus talked about this widow in Luke chapter 4. When he talked about all the widows that might have existed in Israel, whom God could have sent Elijah to, but he instead sent him outside of Israel to Zarephath. And the point that Jesus was making is this. The unbelief of the Israelites was showing itself because a prophet, Jesus says, is not accepted in his own town. So Elijah runs into the woman as she's picking up sticks to make her last meal. And he has first a request and then a promise. The request, 
How about a small piece of bread for me? It was a tough ask. And Elijah got to realize really quickly what a tough ask it was when the woman says to him, I'm making our last meal. The last little bit of flour, the last little bit of oil, we're going to make our final meal and then prepare to die. But then Elijah had a promise. Make me a small cake of bread first, and God will take care of you. The jar of oil, the jug of oil, the jar of flour, they won't run out. They won't go dry. They'll last throughout the whole famine until God again sends rain. What do you think of the faith of that woman? I suppose you could make the case that she really didn't have anything to lose. She was on her last meal, but she trusted. She trusted Elijah's word. She did as Elijah asked. She did what we would call the very definition of faith, being sure of what we hope for, as Hebrews 11 says, and certain of what we do not see. And God was faithful too. He continued to provide, not just for the woman and her son, but, but also for Elijah throughout the rest of the famine. That's a great miracle. Can you imagine what that was like? Every day that the woman went to look to see if there was still flour and still oil, there it was. And the next day, the same. And the day after that, the same. God miraculously kept the supplies from running out so that Elijah, his prophet, and the woman and her son were fed. One tragedy was averted only to lead to another tragedy. Let's read about that in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her, from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. As the meals kept on being served, the lives of the woman and her son were preserved until her boy got sick and then died. And in that tragedy, we see a lot about what grief can do because the woman's grief spills over into blame. And then she understands a truth that God's word tells us that wasn't even spoken yet, at least not written down. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. Did you hear what the woman said? Have you come to remind me of my sin by taking my son? She felt the weight of that sin. She felt that this was happening because of her own problems. And Elijah prayed. 
And I think about this prayer of Elijah. Did it strike you at all as we read through it? Do you speak to God that way? He's letting God know he doesn't agree with him, doesn't he? Did, did you do this, God? Is this really the way you want to go about this? And I, and I think it's a lesson to be learned for us, that, that there's a bit of a searching prayer there, that Elijah's looking for God's reasons why he might be doing something like this in someone's lives, and can't we feel that? Don't we know that tension of wanting to trust that God knows what he's doing, but having those burning questions of why? And I love Elijah's prayer. He asks for what he thinks is best. Spare the boy's life. Bring him back from the dead. And God does. God listens to the prayer. He brings the boy's life back to him. And the joy, can you imagine? All that had happened. And now Elijah was able to present the woman's son to her alive. Look, your son is alive, he says. The elation spills over into her words, doesn't it? She says, now I know. Now I know that you're a man of God and that everything that you say is the truth. God used this miracle, the power of raising the young man from the dead to demonstrate to the woman that she could trust his word. The story doesn't tell us, but I like to think we're going to see this woman and her son in heaven. All because God sent Elijah away from Israel off to Zarephath to be fed and then proclaim the gospel to this woman. I suppose if we're going to count miracles in this section, that's the major miracle number three, raising from the dead. But doesn't it bring another resurrection to mind? Maybe we could talk about our own resurrection a little bit, that God's going to raise us from the dead too when Jesus comes again on the last day. But it also is a picture of the love that God demonstrated when he raised his own son from the dead to guarantee us that our sins are gone forever. A couple things to take away from our chapter today. Number one, God promises to meet our needs and provide for us. We, we read it just a little bit earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God will give you all that you need and having everything that you need, you can abound in every good work. Number two, God invites us to trust his promises and rely on his love. In Psalm 50, he reminds us to call upon him in the day of trouble. He will deliver us and we will honor him. Finally, number three, just as God raised his son, he will raise us to eternal life with him. Do you remember these words of Jesus in John chapter 11? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's God's promise to you and to me. How's your Easter joy? We're three months past our celebration of Easter. Is it kind of in the rearview mirror? Have you sort of forgotten about the joy of Easter? Or is it something that you can continue to think about every day? My prayer for you is that, that joy of knowing that Jesus is alive. Those same words that Elijah spoke to the woman, look, your son is alive, are words that we can say too. Look, God's son is alive because it changes everything. It's your guarantee that God did exactly what he promised to do, that Jesus was delivered over to death because of our sins and raised to life because we are declared not guilty. But it also reminds you of your future. God promises in Jesus' own words 
Because I live, you also will live. Do you remember the question that Jesus asked his disciples all the way back at the start of the sermon that I talked about? Who do people say I am? Do you remember the question he asked next after hearing their answer? Who do you say I am? As we walk through this book of Elijah and get to see the power of God at work, the power to provide for us, the power to raise the dead, we can answer with Peter and the other disciples. You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we know that through him and believing in him, we have life in his name. Amen. Peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, amen.